You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm out of town this week, and actually, so is Nancy. Don't tell anyone. We eloped. Please don't tell our spouses. So no big rant to start the show this week. We're just going to get right to your questions. But I did have a programming note, something I said last week that I wanted to not clear up. I wanted to add to. Last week, I mentioned a letter that Ben Franklin wrote to a friend about taking a mistress. And while it's true that Franklin said older women were preferable to younger women when it comes to mistresses because, and I quoted him, they are so grateful, those older women. And here, Franklin used two exclamation points to make the seemingly sexist age of suggestion that an older woman is by definition a more desperate woman and therefore more grateful to get the dick, any dick that she can get. I should have mentioned that that grateful crack came at the end of a long list of other reasons why this young man, and it was a young man he was advising, should opt for an older woman as his mistress. According to Franklin, older women are more knowledgeable about the world and thus make better conversationalists and you do spend a lot of time chatting after the sex and they're more discreet. They demonstrate quote, greater prudence in conducting an intrigue, which is an important trait in a mistress. There's also, if you go old enough, no hazard of children. And the pleasure of corporal enjoyment with an older woman is at least equal and frequently superior to a younger one as the older woman is more practiced. You can read the letter itself online. It is not a hoax, but it's the grateful thing that gets quoted the most. It's the only thing that ever gets quoted about that letter Franklin wrote and it isn't the only reason he gave. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, the free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads and lots of guests. Dr. Becky Lynn joins us today to talk about the results of a study that she conducted on women and pot and orgasms, and sex, and is there a relationship? And spoiler alert, there is. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a female confused about uh, sexual orientation living in Utah. I have a question for you. I'm 35 now, and I want to know why I've been, uh, I've been attracted only to men you know, my entire life, but whenever I've gotten really intoxicated, I really want to be with a woman, but it's not in like a sexual way. It's like, I really want to have like a relationship. I've, I've had one very short relationship with a woman and um, was very confused by it. And to this day, we still have this like really passionate relationship where I fall into these sort of fantasies of living this life with her and, you know, adopting her child. But it, it gets really strong and really believable when I'm drunk and when I'm sober it scares me and it doesn't seem possible. And I just wonder why um, those feelings can be so strong. I wonder why, Dan, why am I a lesbian but only when I'm drunk? <laughs> Perhaps you have Kate and Alley syndrome, which is a reference to an ancient sitcom where two middle-aged married women with children move in with each other and blend their families and have this Romantic friendship. Romantic friendships used to be a thing. It used to be a very common sort of relationship model. There were a lot of lesbian couples, no doubt. 
in the 19th and 18th and early 20th century who hid under the banner of romantic friendship. No pussy eating going on here. Nothing to worry about, ladies and gentlemen. We are just spinsters. We are just good friends who share a household for the convenience of it. And I wonder if that's not what you fantasize about when you are drunk. If that perhaps isn't the kind of relationship, not sexual relationship, but romantic relationship that might appeal to you on some level. And you can't really conceive of it or wrap your head around it or allow yourself to fantasize about it when you're sober. But when you're drunk, you're a 19th century spinster traveling through Constantinople on their way to Cairo with your spinster buddy. Maybe? That's just my crazy theory. We've actually talked a lot in the last few years about People who are bisexual but homo or hetero romantic, someone who's bisexual but has a strong preference romantically for one or the other sex. And it's possible that you are heterosexual and biromantic or heterosexual and homo romantic. People are infinitely complex. And something about booze allows you to go there. It disinhibits, and suddenly you're fantasizing about what might be a decent relationship for you, your preferred relationship model, which is sex with dudes on the side and then going home, the warm embrace of a loving and intimate friend. Hi, Dan, a longtime follower from the Chicago Reader Days. I am a cis female married in an open relationship. I have a close relationship with a platonic girlfriend for over 20 years now. Um, Her brother is one of my dearest friends. I've gone to five of their family reunions, and I adore her parents. Well, about a month ago, I went to brunch with her and two other women when I shared my experience of racism in Connecticut and why I, as a black woman, would not be relocating there for a job promotion. My friend, who lived in Connecticut for a while, took this very personally, but waited until the next day to send out a group text Uh, on how Connecticut is not racist, how when she lived there, she had a diverse group of friends and never saw anyone treated any differently because of their race. And what I was probably experiencing was a typical response to anyone not from the East Coast. I tried to explain to her that we're allowed to have different experiences, even in the same place, and that my account was not calling the entire state or her friends racists. But when there's institutionalized white supremacy, there are things that she will not experience due to her white privilege. Uh, As you can imagine, this did not go well. Uh, She's been telling her family and some of our shared friends that I'm calling her a racist and a white supremacist. I'm now having to explain to more people that I'm comfortable with the difference between racism and white privilege, and it's super frustrating. As hurtful as this entire experience has been, I've seen her do similar things to other women she's close to. Uh, not specifically rate stuff, but you know, playing a victim role when someone has a different worldview than she has. She calls pretty much any female friend that doesn't agree with her uh, aggressive and, and plays this victim role. Uh, my question to you is, what should I do here? Um, if I do nothing, uh, she tells everyone that I'm a race instigator, and I continually have to defend myself to people that I consider to be my family. There's a related dynamic, I think, that comes up a lot on this show, not tied to race, where women have it in their heads that they are there in a romantic relationship to repair it and repair him. And they are not allowed to walk the fuck away from someone who is shitty or damaged or awful 
or abusive or just not in good working order and is a drag that you failed as a woman if you don't somehow doctor that relationship, if you don't repair it. You can't fix it. And so women stay in shitty relationships and slog away at them. It's why 20 years ago I came up with not the motherfucker already, DTMFA, because so many of the letters were from people who needed just to be told to get the fuck out, that it was okay to leave, that you can break up with someone who's awful, irreparably so. And it's a skill. I think it's a skill that we all need to learn in life to recognize when a relationship is too damaged or someone is too damaged to have a relationship with and, and exit. So my advice for you would be to dump the motherfucking shitty friend already to cut this woman out of your life. She's sort of gaslighting you and, and race baiting you by accusing you of race baiting her in this weird funhouse mirror way. And it is not okay to understand the difference between being a racist and being the beneficiary as a white person by default of white privilege in this culture. That's not a hard thing to wrap your head around, particularly if you have a patient friend of any race who can explain that to you. That takes about two seconds to really process and understand. So your friend is being – your hopefully ex-friend is being willfully obtuse and a shitty, insecure, kind of white supremacist here. It is kind of white supremacist to deny the existence of white supremacy. It's kind of white supremacist to see to pretend that white privilege – is not a fucking thing. And to tell an African-American person that there was no racism in a state because when you lived there as a white person, you didn't see it. And to be the kind of white person who can't understand, can't see white privilege for what it is, and then turn around and say you're qualified somehow to say whether or not racism exists in a place and at a time? Bullshit. You say you have friends in common, friends who are siding with her. I would encourage you to cut those shitty fuckers out of your life as well and make some new goddamn friends and give yourself permission to walk the fuck away. It is not your job in a romantic relationship or a friendship to endlessly work on it. You have not failed if you end a relationship that is bad for you and a waste of your time and causing grief and trouble in your life. You can go. You have my permission to go. No, no, no. I don't want to give you my like white dude male privilege permission to go. I want you to look inside yourself and say, isn't that what you want? Ask yourself, what do you want? Do you want to go? Because if you want to go, you have my full support. And I think it is the wisest course of action. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at rescues. I'm calling from a small town in Indiana and I was just scrolling on a dating website, dating app, when I came across a very close friend's husband's profile. They've been together for, I think, 10 or 12 years. They're married. They have two small children. And I know without a doubt that this is not something that she would be aware of. It would not be okay with her. And I am debating on whether or not I should tell her. Um, I know her well enough to know that she would want to know. I know I would want to know, but at the same time, I don't want to be the one to break the news to her. So I don't know what to do. There are reasons short of I'm going to cheat on my spouse that people get onto dating apps. People like to get their flirt on. People sometimes socialize on dating apps. People 
like to be affirmed, have their attractiveness affirmed. And, and sometimes having your attractiveness affirmed by strangers on dating apps gives you the charge you need to go home and plow the shit out of your partner. <laughs> you know, your partner has to be attracted to you, has to tell you you're hot. And that gets to people after a while. And they stop believing it when their partner says it. And then that can sabotage their intimacy, their sexual connection with their partner because they're feeling insecure and unattractive. And then hearing it from someone else whose job it isn't to tell you you're hot can send you home. And then when your partner says it, you believe them. And then you're fucking on the kitchen counter. Sometimes people go on dating apps with their partner's permission because they have an open relationship and they're closeted about their open relationship. And so their friends don't know that it is okay with them. And then their friends stumble over their partners on dating apps and feel the burden of keeping this secret or protecting that relationship or the struggle that you have right now. Do you reveal you would want to know? She has led you to believe perhaps accurately that she would want to know and this wouldn't be okay with her, which is Sometimes what people who are in open relationships lead their friends and relatives to believe. And yeah, and people go on dating apps because they fully intend to cheat on their partners and then they get caught. So what do you do? Ugh. If you would want to know, you can golden rule this. If she'd found your spouse on that dating app, you would want her to tell you. So you're going to tell her. You have to bear in mind that you may blow that relationship up. And maybe they're at a low point and maybe he's thinking about cheating and he's going to think better of it and pull his face off that app after having a couple of conversations with a couple of people and get religion and walk a straight line and never get on a dating app again and never, despite having been on that dating app briefly, never touch another living human being on the planet ever again with the tip of his penis. Maybe that's what's going to happen. And the crisis in their relationship isn't then that he was briefly on this app, it would be the exposure that he was on this app. Ah, there's a lot to wrestle with here. Isn't there? All that said, if you've spotted him, if he's being so reckless as to put his face on there and you recognized him, other women in your community, if he's looking local, are going to spot him too. And it is inevitably going to get back to his spouse that he is on a dating app. Because if you don't tell her, somebody else is going to tell her. And I think that tips the scales there. I think that sways me into the go tell her what you saw camp. And don't make assumptions. You should say to her, doesn't mean he's cheated necessarily. Sometimes people do this just for fun. You may hear from her, it's okay. You know, we're not really having sex right now. And so we opened it up just for sex. And she may very reluctantly confide that in you. Or it may be the match to the fuse that blows up their marriage and you will inevitably feel some share of responsibility for that. If the explosion that ends the relationship is the outcome of the reveal. Hi, Dan, I am a straight girl in Chicago and I'm engaged and me and my fiance, we're having a problem with our sex life. I guess that everything's fine, but whenever he wants to initiate sex, he like grabs my head and tries to like pull it towards his crotch. Like, it's like, this is like, it's sex time. And to me, it's really annoying. Like, that's not really how I want sex to start. But I understand where he's coming from because when I watch porn, I see that like, it's like, oh, you know, girl suddenly gives me, you know, <laughs> unanticipated blowjob. And that's what it all comes down to. But 
I need more to get me going, but I still want to give him a, a give him a blow job. I mean, so what should I do? I guess I'm confused because I'm trying to make him happy, but I also just don't want to get my head shoved down on somebody's cock. <sighs> Help. So let's blame porn. Porn put it in his head that this is how you initiate or ask for a blowjob, and this is okay to do, to grab some woman's head, some woman that you're dating, someone you have a relationship with, and just shove her face down to your crotch. Shove her face down to your dick. That that's okay. And porn put that in his head. What put it in your head that you can't object to that? What put it in your head? And I'm not pointing finger at you, blaming you. What put it in your head that you couldn't the first time he did that? You don't like it. Tell him you don't like it. What put it in your head the first time he pulled that move that you couldn't just say, hey, look, I'm happy to suck your dick, but never, ever push my face down to your crotch like that again. That's not how you get a blowjob out of me. That's not how this blowjob Pez dispenser works. I require X, Y, and Z, a little buildup, some making out, a little rolling around, an ask, maybe use your words instead of your hands and pressure and force, and then maybe you'll get a blowjob. But now, no, no blowjob for you. No dick in my mouth, not when you're shoving my face down to your crotch. Now, there are people out there that that's what works for them. There are people out there who write me who want their partners to be more aggressive and push them around and force them quote-unquote, force them to do X, Y, or Z. Or even people have written me and described exactly what you described. When he wants a blowjob, why won't he just shove me down onto my knees? So there are some people out there who this move that he is deploying is exactly what they're looking for. You are not that person, and you need to tell him so. You need to tell him wherever this came from, even if he's never watched porn ever in his life, this isn't a move that works for you. And so it stops. And the next time he tries it, then you tell him, Last chance. Ever do that again, it's over. I've already told you, I do not like this. I do not like having my head shoved down to your crotch. If you had other girlfriends who like that, maybe you should give one of them a ring and date one of them instead. I don't like it. Stop it. And spoiler alert, the thing that put it in your head that you're not allowed to say that, the culture, the culture that socializes women to defer to men and not say no to men. Women often end up in sexual situations with men where then they call some other guy, this man with the dumb podcast, to get permission to do what the culture told them they're not allowed to do, which is to look at him and say, stop it. No, don't be shoving my head down into your crotch. I ain't a fleshlight. You want your dick in my mouth? You're going to have to earn it. Convince me that that's where I want your dick. Hey, Dan, quick moral question for you. My little sister, she's 19, so she's an adult, still lives with my parents. They pay for her car, her phone, everything. She has this asshat boyfriend now who doesn't want to use protection. They've been dating for like four months, and he's been telling her all these different lies about birth control, like the IUD requires surgery, and it will impact her athletic ability because she plays water polo. I've tried to correct these lies by giving her some actual information, and she just doesn't believe anybody except for him. My parents, who are Mormon, found out that they're having sex, and basically were very calm about the whole thing, which was very surprising to me, and they required that she get on birth control. They said that they would pay for it. She could pick any method she pleased. didn't fucking matter to them. She just had to pick a method because I had kind of informed them without directly informing them so she wouldn't get in trouble that they should heavily imply that she should get on birth control because <laughs> I'm worried about her. So as a response to this, she argued that it's her body and she can do whatever she wants with it. She ran away from home and she worked at like 
target. So who knows how long that's going to last for. But I was just curious about your thoughts on if you can require someone who's dependent on you to be on birth control, morally speaking. Your sister's 19 years old and an adult. You can't require her to be on birth control, nor can your parents require her to be on birth control. And it would be a deeply shitty manipulative thing to make getting on birth control a condition of having housing. I think your sister should be on birth control. I think you're right. I think your parents are right. I think the deepest, shittiest person in this entire scenario is this boyfriend who is lying to her about birth control. This is a huge red flag for abusive behavior. One of the signs of an abuser is a rush to a premature commitment. And sometimes that rush comes in the form of going to knock you up, wants to get you pregnant as soon as possible because then your DNA is scrambled together and you are stuck with each other in some capacity for life. I think that's what he's up to here. Four months into this relationship, he's lying to her about birth control. He's pressuring her not to use birth control to risk an unplanned and still for the next however many months, teen pregnancy with him. This is a way of locking her down by knocking her up. And you should say that to her and your parents should say that to her and you should all do as much urging and intervening as you can. But you know, sometimes you watch someone you love a young adult slam their hand down on the self-destruct button and there's nothing you can do about it. But watch and then be there to help pick up the pieces when they realize, as they almost always do, that they should have listened to you in the first place. And when that happens, you don't want to say, told you so. You just want to, because they know. They know you told them so. They know. You just want to help them pick up the pieces. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old woman in New York City calling about my dad, a 68-year-old retired gay man. My mom divorced him about 30 years ago when she realized he was gay. Then he was in a 17-year partnership, but ultimately I think his alcoholism and other issues led to his husband divorcing him nine years ago. After that, he couldn't find a long-term relationship, saying that was what he wanted, but men his age were, in his words, old, fat, and ugly. He did meet men on apps, including silver daddies, for hookups and attempts at dating. The bigger obstacles to a relationship were likely his Deep sadness, alcoholism, tendency to be incredibly rude and mean under the guise of humor, and failure to attempt any kind of therapy. About a year and a half ago, he took a vacation to Panama and connected with a 26-year-old Panamanian man, or kid, as he called him, who had found him on an app. They spent the whole trip together and stayed in touch. Then my dad started taking him along on his retiree vacations every few months. By January 2018, he told me that he wanted to marry the kid to offer him a better life in America and to be his partner and take care of him as he gets older. I hoped that it would fizzle out due to the kid's inability to get even a tourist visa to come to the States and the relatively long absences between their vacations together. But by June of last year, I learned that my dad had been sending him $500 a month in addition to paying for his English lessons, gym membership, and of course, the vacation. My dad is a retired school teacher living off a modest pension, so this represents a large percentage of his income. A few weeks ago, he announced that the application is in for the kid's fiancé visa to come to the U.S. I haven't met the kid and have not seen any evidence that this is more than opportunism. My dad is all over the place when trying to explain the relationship. He'll go from describing the kid as his charity case, a puppy dog that he's rescuing from a horrible existence, to saying that 
he's trying to find love where he is and he can't. So what other option is left to all relationships are opportunistic and it's perfectly fine for one spouse to depend completely on the other financially. He says he expects the kid to come here and get an education and be successful while also telling us that he was kicked out of his English course for disobeying the school's rules and that he doesn't have much to offer intellectually. He has also said to me that he has spent so much money on the kid and the immigration lawyer at this point that there's no turning back. Uh, he does at least promise that there will be a prenup. I'm actually maybe okay kind of about the relationship if it were to stay the way it was where he sends an allowance and then that way he gets a companion for his trips. What's scary is having this person legally bound to my family and worrying about how this affects us all in the future. Is it unfair to not support this relationship or should I be doing more to stop it? Your dad, like the 19-year-old woman, adult woman, who may or may not be using birth control, depending on who she's listening to at this moment, is an adult. And he gets to make his own choices, even terrible ones. And he may be slamming his hand down on the self-destruct button here, or he may be having a perfectly wonderful commodified relationship with someone that he is using for sex and intimacy and connection, uh, and who is using him to immigrate and for financial support. But there's not a lot that you can do about it, short of having your father declared incompetent, short of dragging him into court and having him assessed. What can you do? Your support for the relationship is irrelevant. You've already let him know that you think it's a bad idea. He's already trotted out all sorts of different rationalizations for the relationship. And now you're just going to have to stand back and let him have the relationship. You have your father's ear and that's important and you should use it. Press him on that prenup. Make sure he's actually drawn one up. Tell him you want to go with him to the lawyer. Obviously, it's not to protect your massive inheritance because he's a school teacher on a modest pension. So this isn't about greed. This isn't about, oh, my God, this kid from wherever is going to get the family business and the family fortune. This is just about not wanting to see your father taken too much advantage of by this person that he is also taking advantage of. It's possible to construct a whole other narrative for this relationship where your father's the predator and your father's dangling this life in America to someone who's in a very desperate situation. It's also possible that they're both a little at fault and they're both using each other. But at the end of the day, you have to recognize the limitations of your powers here. You're not going to have them declared incompetent. You cannot stop this thing from happening. You can encourage your father to mitigate the obvious risks. And that does mean an ironclad prenup if indeed he winds up marrying this guy. But you don't want to cut your dad off. If this person, if this kid, if his boyfriend, if his future spouse is abusive or violent, your dad may need to call you guys in, call on his family like the cavalry to rescue him from his own stupidity. And don't say I told you so, just be there. And it's possible to say to your dad, I'm going to be supportive, but skeptical. I am going to be supportive, but I am going to scrutinize this relationship because it could be exploitative in either direction. And it could be bad. Any relationship could be bad. And a relationship with these kinds of power differentials and financial differentials, yeah, those kinds of relationships are ripe for abuse. I support you whatever choice you make, dad, but let's all keep our eyes open, shall we? You, me, all of us. And now let's go see the lawyer about that prenup. 
Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old cis female. I'm having some issues with my boyfriend of uh, going on five years now. He's been through a lot recently, a loss of a family member, um, a really tumultuous job situation, and dealing with a long-term illness that he's had for a while, but hasn't really had any support on. His, his grandmother dying really set him over the edge, though, and he's been pretty severely depressed in the last couple of months. I've encouraged him to go to therapy and done my best to be loving and supportive, even though like he's not feeling up to doing the things we usually do, like just going on dates or even just being intimate. And it's come to the point for him where even though I feel things are fine between us, he's thinking about breaking up with me to bear me the pain of watching him be depressed. Or um, he says, like, even if he gets out of this funk, he doesn't know how he'll turn out on the end. And I was depressed when we first started dating. So I really appreciate how supportive he was from the get-go. And yeah, I just don't know, should I let him break up with me or like try and stick it out? So you were depressed and he was there for you. He helped you mm-hmm. get your shit together, right? Yeah, definitely. And you want to return the favor and it sounds like you're trying. You're trying to help him get his shit together. Mm-hmm. And is he refusing that help? Is he refusing to make any step toward he was, like actively pushing like me away? Um, I know his his mother is usually on the same page and is taking fights with her a lot, but he's gotten out of it recently. Mm-hmm. Like he's said to me, I have like a much clearer mind the last couple of days. So there is some improvement, but he's still like keeping his distance. But it's really, I guess, alarming because I felt really scared in our relationship before. And now it's like, I'm the one who has to reach out every time. Uh-huh. Like, are you okay today? Um, and it's just, it's weird because I've never felt insecure about us before. You know, you say that one of the contributing factors to his depression or pushing you away was that his grandmother died suddenly and that sent him over the edge. Mm-hmm. Isn't dying yeah. what grandparents do? Kind of, but like she made it to... Like she would have been 102 this year, so it was like they all knew about it, like logically on paper. Mm-hmm. But I think he's just kind of like the fact that it actually happened. Was he very? Was he very close to his grandmother? Yeah. Did his grandmother raise him? Oh yeah, um, yeah. Like they're it was like a big Italian family, so they're all like super close, and there's a million and five of them. Okay. Um. So a million and five of them, that means she wasn't his only elderly relative either. So there will be more yeah, more deaths yeah. in the family coming his way. Uh, it, it, that just, you know, I just bumped on that. When, when you said that, I was just like, wait, what? His grandmother died and, and, and he's inconsolable? Mm-hmm. Like, you live long enough, all your grandparents die. You live long enough, you're somebody's grandparent, you die. That's just the natural order mm-hmm. of things. And it's sad and it's depressing. And, you know, I had one grandparent I was particularly close to. I was really bummed when he died. But... 
you know, I think you have a right to say to somebody, she was 102 fucking years old. Mm-hmm. Get your shit together. And I, listening to the call, and I listened to it a couple of times, you know, it sounds like you're doing everything you can. It sounds like it's not coming just from a place of tit for tat obligation. He helped me when he was depressed. I no longer get a lot out of this relationship, but I feel obligated to help him now that he's depressed. Sounds like you really love him and would like to be with him. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you want to come through for him in the way that he came through for you. And I don't want, you know, to the marriage of two minds to introduce impediments or anything, but listening to the call, I was just wondering if he wants out and he can't take responsibility for it. And so he's leaning into maybe depression that exists or ginning up a depression to push you away without then having to take responsibility for it and saying, I want to end the relationship. What he's saying is mm-hmm. I, you know, as a favor to you, I want to end the relationship because I'm so depressed because my 102 year old grandmother dropped dead, which is what 102 year old grandmothers do at a pretty regular clip. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> You know, often people are cowards. This came up earlier on the show. People are cowards. People have a hard time ending relationships that they want to end. So they will have an affair and blow it up because then they don't have to say anything out loud. And then they're kind of the victims in some bank shoddy way, even though they had the affair or they point to other things and then they tell you they're breaking up with you to spare you, to do you a favor, not because they want to. And I'm being kind of harsh and kind of blunt and and I hope I'm not upsetting you, but no, no, this, this makes a lot of sense. But think about it. Is there, do you think he might just want to end the relationship? Is there a pattern in the relationship where he has a hard time with conflict? He has a hard time with telling you an uncomfortable truth. He has a hard time taking responsibility. Does he deflect? That, that's the weird thing. Like I thought our communication was okay up to this point. And then like the grandmother dying just kind of like he's had a lot of stress in other points of his life recently and like the grandmother dying was the nail in his coffin Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that just that that strikes me as odd and and, you know the human heart is mysterious and not all of our emotions are entirely rational and we can say to ourselves my hundred year old grandparent is gonna die and i know they're gonna die and then they do die and we can really be knocked sideways i want to allow for that if somebody refuses your help, there's only so much you can do. And you said this thing that also I bumped on and it raised my suspicions where he wants to break up with you and you're not sure you should let him. You can't prevent someone from breaking up with you who wants to break up with you. I felt like I could try at least, you know. Well, well, well you can. You can. You can say to somebody, yeah. if you're breaking up with me for me, I don't want you to break up with me for me. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to do me that favor. So if this is something you're doing for me, okay. don't do it. But if this is something you're doing for you, even if what he might need right now is just some space and time to be single, maybe that's why you're having to reach out and contact him and he's not reaching out and contacting you. Maybe there's something he needs to process or think about. And if he has some space and time and processes it and thinks about it, he'll come to, yes, this is who I want to be with. And I just needed that to feel like a choice and not to feel like we were just coasting along and this to feel like an active choice and and, uh, an expressed need and want and not just we're together. So we're together and giving someone, you know, people often feel like giving somebody some space and time when they ask for it is always just the slow-mo breakup. Right. Mm -hmm. But sometimes giving someone that space and time allows them to opt back in and to have some agency. And so maybe you should strategically allow him to break up with you after having a kind of as blunt as I've been with you conversation with him as blunt with him as I've been Mm -hmm. with you. That's what I meant to say. Got that backwards. 
We just, you say some of the things that I've said to you, like game it out. Like if you want out for you, then you can get out. If you want out for me, don't get out for me. If you need time and space and you need to not hear from me for a few months so you can really sit with this and choose our relationship again freely, I'll give you that time and space. Tell me what you want. Stop telling me what you think I might want or need. What do you want? What do you need? Let's do that. And you can point to how he helped you at the beginning of your relationship. There was something you wanted and you needed from him at that time, which is a kind of support that worked for you. And you need to give him right now the kind of support that'll work for him. And maybe that's distance and maybe that's space. And maybe that's a break in the relationship that could be temporary. But what is the support that he needs? And, and the risk, of course, is, you know, if you give some permission to leave you, they might leave you. But in the end, if someone wants to leave you with or without your permission, they're going to go. It's just a matter of timing or how long they drag it out yeah. or how long you allow it to be dragged out. Now, there's moments with, you know, where someone yeah. is peeling a bandaid off our, off us. Someone is taking a bandaid off you very slowly. Have you ever had this experience where somebody's peeling a bandaid off you so slowly and you just shove their hand out of the way and rip it off yourself? Mm-hmm. That's sometimes how relationships end. That person thinks they're being kind by tearing that bandaid off so slowly and you have to move their hand away and rip it off yourself. Okay. I can, I can live with that. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and my fingers crossed. It sounds like you, you love him and want to be with him. And I still, and I think that's possible. I'm not like writing the obituary of this relationship. This could go either way. So mm-hmm. live in hope, but you need to have some really scary stare into the abyss convos with your boyfriend. Okay. Well, it was really good to hear. And thank you so much, Dan. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I am a gay man in my mid-30s living in the Midwest. About three years ago, I started to party and play with ecstasy, MDMA, and Tina. At first on a weekly basis, and then an entire weekend, and finally nearly every day. One year ago this month, in March 2018, I stopped. During those years of partying, my sex life was hooking up only, either with others partying or random guys that were not. Now that I am sober and healthy, I am ready and interested in dating and hopefully finding a boyfriend. I am having a difficult time in feeling sexually attracted to guys, and I have anxiety about getting back into the flirting and dating game. It is almost as if the years of partying and meeting guys in that context has dampened my libido and ability to naturally crush and be interested in guys like I once was. I am blessed with a loving family, and I have a great therapist. My question for you Can you provide any guidance, tips, or pointers on helping me reconnect with my inner self and with guys? So the partying started three years ago, and you got sober a year ago. So there were two years there, and it was intense toward the end of that period. You were doing all these drugs on a daily basis and creating a really powerful association between drugs and hooking up and and sex. And there is this subculture of chem parties, chem guys, chem gays who are hooking up and using tons of drugs and looking for other guys who are in the same place, all fucked up on these drugs and looking for dick. And for a lot of guys who get sucked into this, it's not just about pleasure. It's about shame. The drugs allow them to overcome whatever it was that was pounded into their heads by the culture, by their families, by their religious traditions about their desires being not okay. And the only way they can find to give themselves permission to do the things that they want to do to screw the people that they want to screw is to 
turn it off with drugs, to, to turn off all of those voices, to override the, the shame. And it ain't healthy, as you know, and it ain't sustainable, as anyone who's watched a friend crack up and die because they got addicted to meth and dick and dick and meth in that combo. So good for you that you got off it. I'm glad that you have a loving and supportive family. I'm glad that you have a good therapist. You ask me for any tips and pointers on reconnecting with guys, and my answer is probably going to be no different than your therapist, to take it slowly, to avoid guys, not avoid, to absolutely say no to guys who are abusing these party drugs, and to be honest with the guys that you do date. You know, you're not 15 years a meth addict. You got sucked into... E and meth and whatever else for a year or two. Hardcore for however long it was you were doing it on a daily basis. And you're tiptoeing back out of that. And it's going to take some time for you to carve some new neural pathways, for you to make some new and positive associations between intimacy, between sex, even recreational sex, and your sober self and your being fully present. And so I would encourage you to be honest with the guys that you meet, the guys that you date, that this is where you're at right now. And intimacy minus drugs right now is an unfamiliar place. But it isn't as unfamiliar to you as it might be to guys who were abusing drugs like this and dick like this and themselves like this for a decade or more. 24 months. It's only been 12 since you got sober. That's a big deal. Be patient. Give it some more time. Find instead of a boyfriend or sex partners, find some cuddle buddies. Find some people that you can have low stakes, low key intimacy with and just experience skin to skin contact and hanging out and watching movies and lower the pressure, lower expectations and allow it to reemerge from inside you because it was there. You're in your mid thirties. This is the last three years you're talking about one year of it sober and prior to that, you had this capacity to connect with guys, to be intimate with guys, to be your gay self. So it's in there. It's just buried under a lot of drugs and a lot of really powerful associations between the euphoria and manicness with meth of those drugs and how you welded that to sex. And it's just going to take some time to make a new association between sex and desire and intimacy as opposed to sex and desire and chemistry. Hi, Dan. I am a 23-year-old woman living in the Pacific Northwest. Um, my boyfriend and I have been together for about two months now, and I have something really weird going on. I've told him pretty much from the get-go that I really, really like oral sex and expect him to go down on me. Um, he did it once shortly after we started dating for maybe like a minute and then he never did it again, even though I asked him multiple times to do so. Um, about probably two weeks ago, he tried one more time to go down on me uh, and it was super, super awkward. I asked him, I said, you know, will you go down on me when we were you know, getting all, when we were making out? And he said, oh, I'm just too tired. I said, okay, you know, I was a little bit hurt by it, and he could tell, so he's like, no, 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 okay, I'll go down on you. And, you know, my reaction was, well, that's, no, I don't want you to go down on me. Like, you obviously aren't into it. You don't want to do it. I'm not going to ask you to do it. And he basically was like, no, no, like, please, come on, let me do it. It's, I didn't mean it like that. Like, so we did it, and I was 
super close to coming when all of a sudden he stopped and was like, can you even get off from this? (sighs) And it kind of ruined things. After that, I said, you know, I do expect oral sex on a regular basis. Like it's something that gets me off and something that I really appreciate. And so far, nothing, nothing at all. So, and he'll bring it up. He'll say, you know, oh, I know you want oral and then just won't do it. What the fuck? What are your thoughts? Well, have you tried just putting your hand on the top of his head and pushing him down toward your crotch? I've heard that that might work. Two months. You've invested two months in this relationship. You're not sexually compatible. He doesn't like eating pussy and you require pussy eating to feel sexually fulfilled, to get off. And this guy is doing a thing that a lot of people have done, a lot of women have done too, where there's this sex act that their partner wants and appreciates or requires and their MO, their strategy is to do it reluctantly and badly in the hopes that they will not be asked to do it ever again. Kind of shitty and manipulative instead of just saying, hey, I don't like eating pussy and so price of admission being with me is that's not going to happen because then you can walk. They're just going to like string you along saying, oh, you like that maybe. Uh, Are you still enjoying this? Uh, I'm going to do it for you uh, once in a while just so you'll keep dating me until we're like so far in you're really not going to make a big emotional investment in me. And then once the oral stops, the bad oral reluctantly performed once in a great while. Once that finally stops, then maybe you won't break up with me because we have a house and a kid. Break up with him now. It's been two fucking months. You're still in the discovery phase. And what you've discovered is that you guys are not sexually compatible, that he's not the kind of sex partner that you need. You need some guy who loves to eat pussy and those guys are out there and some of them are with women who don't like to have their pussies eaten and those guys send me sad letters and sometimes call the show with their sad problem they don't get to eat pussy because their wife or girlfriend doesn't enjoy that for whatever reasons and sometimes the reasons can be legitimate some people just don't like oral go find one of those guys because not all of those guys are partnered some of those guys are single and they are ready willing and able and dying to eat your pussy Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a queer uh, mid-30s woman um, on the West Coast. And um, I'm just calling for a little perspective on a rule or boundary in my open relationship that my partner and I have different feelings about. We're sort of prepping for a talk about it, so I just kind of wanted to get some perspective first. We have some problems in our open relationship, but we're trying to work through them with different expectations. But one thing that we clash on is our home. We're married and we live together. And um, we're open, you know, to seeing other people separately and together. And we've brought people into our home together before. My partner really wants to be able to, what I think of is like treat our home as if they're single and living by themselves, as if it's not our home. Meaning, I think they want to be able to bring people back whenever they want to our house. Uh, Maybe not when I'm there, but like when I'm out or if I'm away. And we live in an extremely small apartment um, that works for the two of us. But I just feel pretty uncomfortable with this. I'm happy to support my partner in them going out and uh, having experiences with other people or going home with other people. And I've come a long way on that and really, I think, opened up a lot at the idea of them, for example, spending the night with other people or whatever. But I'm just pretty uncomfortable with the idea of sharing my home with these people that my partner is going out with when, you know, I don't really know them. And it's not that I don't trust them. It's just that it's our home. And I just kind of want to keep it as our home for us and our sexual experiences and the people that we choose to bring together into the home. I'm sort of open to the idea of like you can bring someone back and full around on the couch, but that just seems like a pretty slippery slope and I don't want to put my partner in a position of 
feeling like there's like a whole space of the house that's off limits. And I would just honestly feel more comfortable with saying, this is our home, can we keep it as ours? I'm wondering if this is a pretty common ask in open relationships because my partner seems to feel that a lot of my boundaries are arbitrary. And I just, I want some perspective. I want to know if I'm being an asshole, if I'm asking for too much and asking that my partner not bring people back to the very, very small house that we share together, even if I'm out of town. Ove up. Over up. You say you don't want them to feel like this is off limits. That's exactly how you want them to feel. This is off limits. You are saying that you have a boundary and you want your bed, at least your bed, you'll throw on the couch. You want your bed to be sacred, at least for now, to your relationship. This is a space where only you and her get together, where only the two of you have sex. It's not a place that you bring back others, thirds, fourths, whatever's. This is just for you and you require that to be in this open relationship. Seems perfectly reasonable to me and doesn't seem at all arbitrary that the bed and the bedroom for you has emotional significance and you want to feel like this is a special space where you two are intimate and sexual only with each other. That's common in open relationships for people to hold something back to say this is just for us. If there's this special whatever just for us. Some people that's PIV. There are a lot of Opposite sex couples in open relationships where they call it soft swapping when they go to play parties and they do oral and mutual masturbation or fantasy stuff with others and roll around, but no PIV. It is also common for people in open relationships to have not in our house. It happens outside of our house or outside of our time zone, outside of our city. No one in our social sphere or friend groups. There's all sorts of limitations that people put down in open relationships that make them work, that make it possible for someone to be in an open relationship. And it's not always the case that everyone's on the exact same page. Sometimes a person has to concede something. I would like to be in an open relationship. I would like to be in an open relationship with you. I think we should be able, both of us, to bring people home and fuck them in this bed in our apartment. But you don't feel that way. And so I'm going to honor your feelings and prioritize your comfort because I want to be your partner. And I want us to open this relationship up together in a way that we both feel good about. And so I will concede that. And it's a small concession. So even if it is arbitrary, so the fuck what? Often these arbitrary seeming limits or rules are temporary. And once you see that your partner is fucking someone on the couch, the idea of your partner fucking someone in the bed will maybe be less scary or less fraught or become less significant over time and you will renegotiate the rules. A long-term open relationship often involves renegotiating the terms so just bear in mind that whatever rules you guys establish, you may revisit. And what seems hugely important to you now, not in our bed, may be less important to you in time. And then you can reopen the negotiations. But for now, stick to your guns. Not in our bed. How hard is that? Are there no Motel 6s? Is there no Balm and Gilead? Is there no sofa in our living room? Yes, there is. There are Motel 6s. There are sofas. There are other places. There's their house. You're making a very reasonable request and your partner should honor it. And by honoring it, even if they weren't on the same page about it, even if they felt differently about it, they're demonstrating to you they care about your feelings and therefore are someone you might feel safe being in an open relationship with. If your partner argues with you about this endlessly, maybe they're not someone you're going to feel safe being in an open relationship with. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call 
what you got. Joining us by phone for this What You Got segment, Dr. Becky Lynn, Director of the Center for Sexual Health and Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at St. Louis University. Hey, Dr. Lynn, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Do you mind if I call you Becky with the good study? Oh, you can absolutely call me Becky. Because <laughs> I, I read the, you know, I'm not familiar with the title. I, I, I'm not familiar with the results of the study, and I haven't read it, but I did read the title, and it seems to be right up our alley here at the Lovecast, The Relationship Between Marijuana Use Prior to Sex and Sexual Function in Women in Sexual Matters. Right. So I'm going to crawl out on a limb here and just... Based on all the advice I've given people over the years, I've always recommended that people who are having a little bit of hang up or a little bit of sexual dysfunction, a little inhibition, not to get like yes. destroyed, but like a little pot every once in a while might help. And I'm guessing that hopefully your study, once again, science is backing up something I've been saying for a long time, lower the boom. What did you find? So, yes, um, it did help with sexual function. So basically, I was hearing the same thing from my patients. You know, I treat women with low libido, painful sex, difficulty with orgasm. And my patients would come to me and say, you know, if I smoke a little marijuana, things get better. And so that prompted me to wonder what does the data show in, you know, the scientific published literature? Um, because if you look on the internet, everything says marijuana is great. It improves desire. It's an aphrodisiac, everything. But when I went to the medical literature, there just isn't a lot because, you know, up until very recently, it's been very illegal. Mm -hmm. So um, what we decided to do was question women. We designed a questionnaire um, to ask women how they thought, well, first, if they used marijuana before sex, and then how they thought it affected the sexual experience, their desire, their orgasm, their lubrication, and pain. And what we found um, was overwhelmingly positive um, that women did report an improvement in the overall experience and desire and orgasm lessening of pain. The majority of women found that um, with no change in lubrication. We also found, um, because before we got into our marijuana questions, we asked some general questions about women's overall sex life. And so we found that women who did smoke marijuana, and, and I say smoke, but 98% of our, our um, respondents were smokers as opposed to other ways of getting their marijuana. Uh -huh. um, but women who did smoke before sex were twice as likely to report that they had satisfactory orgasms in general. <laughs> and then wait, wait, we, wait. I know. So everybody out there wondering how to close the orgasm gap, you may have the answer. I may have the answer. I mean, I don't, I, and I understand I'm a physician, you know, too much marijuana, like you said, is not a good thing because if you can't move, then, you know, it's, it's not. But I did find that, you know, people who had better orgasms were, you know, more likely to have smoked pot now, before is there, sex is in there, general. Is there a correlation causation dispute there? You know, is someone who smokes a little pot likelier to have an orgasm or is the kind of person who would be open to pot and open to using pot and a little bit less inhibited generally be likelier to have an orgasm, pot or no pot? Right. So the answer is yes to both. We don't know. So just because, you know, we found that people who smoke pot were twice as likely to report satisfa satisfactory orgasms, we, you don't know which way it went. Mm -hmm. We're like people who had satisfactory orgasms, they were mostly pot smokers or, and we, we don't, we also don't know like, 
were these people using it to enhance the sexual experience or were they using it just in general because that's what they do or were they really having problems? So, you know, association is not causation. There's a lot of explanations for what we found. So there's more studies that need to be done here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And were you looking at people who smoked pot like right before they had sex? Like we're about to have sex, let's get stoned. Or was it just people who used pot and also then at some point having sex stoned or not stoned? Was there any difference in those groups? So we didn't clarify in our questionnaire exactly when, and that's definitely something that needs to be studied. We divided our groups up into marijuana use before sex as as defined by the person answering the questionnaire versus marijuana use versus no marijuana. Mm -hmm. So um, we didn't really ask about the timing, but um, I definitely know that is very important and something to be looked at in the future, the timing and the dose. We didn't ask about this because the dose makes a big difference. You said you looked at three groups, marijuana use before sex, marijuana use generally, and no marijuana use. So you did look at mm-hmm. the, you did look at the time. Yeah. So, yes, but we didn't define it like five minutes before sex uh, or an uh, hour before sex. You know, we just said before sex. And so it was left up to the respondent to decide, did that mean an hour? Did it mean half an hour? Did it mean like at noon and now it's 11 o'clock? You know, we just don't know. So, yes, we did define the timing, but not exactly. And was there a difference between those two marijuana using groups before sex or generally? Um, yeah. So that's what so the, the people who smoked marijuana before sex were twice as likely, like I said, to report uh, the satisfactory uh, okay. orgasm. But compared to there was a statistically significant difference compared to people who didn't smoke marijuana at all. So there was a difference in those two groups that was statistically significant but not with marijuana users in general. Any other things that leapt out at you? Any other statistically significant data that emerged? Yes. So um, we also divided up our group into uh, frequent users versus not frequent users. And we found that frequent users of marijuana were twice as likely to report satisfactory orgasms as well. And it's the same thing. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you smoke marijuana, you're gonna have a better orgasm. It's that association causation thing that you alluded to, who knows. Um, But we did find a difference in frequent users versus infrequent users. I love these moments. I love it when science catches up to something I've been saying for a very long time. (laughs) You know, for years, I encouraged people to be GGG and then Amy Muse did these studies that showed that GGG was actually good for relationships. And it made the person who was doing Mm -hmm. the indulging, the person who was being for a particular you know, moment or a particular sex act, being the indulger, the good giving in game one, it made them feel better about the relationship, right. not just the indulged person. It was really gratifying to see science right. bear that out for me. Uh, I don't want to get over my right. skis here, but it seems like I can take some similar gratification in science catching up. You know, your study sort of affirming something I've been saying to a lot of people for a long time that – you know, maybe a little bit of marijuana would help. You know, people have hangups, you know, sex phobia. They kink shame themselves. They're hangups with their sexual orientation. I don't think people should get blotto on anything. You know, sometimes you can disinhibit and then you're reckless about being disinhibited. But to take the edge off with a little bit of pot, I've seen that have a positive effect on a lot of people in my life. And although... Uh, causation has not been established. There's an association that your study has established. It's pointing in the direction of people should listen to me. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, now I, I have to preface this with, this is just one study and we know that, you know, marijuana can be harmful and there's a lot that we don't know about marijuana because it really hasn't been studied, but, 
medically, you know, I'm really looking forward to marijuana getting the same, you know, leverage as everything else that we study. And I'm really excited that Canada has, you know, legalized marijuana because now you can actually do high quality studies looking at marijuana. The government used to fund studies, but only studies that were looking at the harms. To, to justify the right, prohibition exactly. of marijuana. But now we're entering an era we can yeah. start looking more impassive. You know, we can start looking at marijuana and letting the data drive the conclusions instead of letting the conclusion shape the data. Exactly. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Absolutely. Uh, so you, I've already said the name of the paper. Usually at the end of a What You Got segment, I invite the researcher to give us the name of the paper so people can find it. But I'm going to invite you again to give the name of the paper and where it was published so the people out there who want to read okay. the results for themselves can look it up. Sure. It's called The Relationship Between Marijuana Use Prior to Sex and Sexual Function in Women. And it's in the open access journal called Sexual Medicine. So you, it's easily findable. Dr. Becky Lynn, Becky with a good study, director of the Center for Sexual Health and associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at St. Louis University. Thank you so much for coming on What You Got Today. Really appreciate it. Uh, And next time you have something out, hit us with it. We'll have you back. I absolutely will. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thank you. Uh, Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a white, cis, straight male, and I've got a question about whether Fighting for a relationship could seem to be or actually be disrespectful. I've been with my wife since about early 2005, and she recently told me that she thought our relationship wasn't very good and that she wanted to separate. Uh, She has since effectively moved downstairs. Since I work out of town, I only have part of the remaining month to show love and and support and try to talk about what specific problems we're having. Uh, Unfortunately, the idea of fighting for the marriage doesn't have a clear opponent. Um, there's no infidelity or drugs or, or money issues, and we've never really fought, which in retrospect is probably a sign of poor communication. Uh, so when I do bring up what could be done to improve our relationship, she seems to feel like I'm fighting against her. Uh, it's been about four months, and I haven't been able to get an idea from her of what we could possibly do to make things better. She seems comfortable with us being roommates and co-parents, and I'm not. Uh, despite what's happening now, she's still my favorite person. Uh, I'm, I'm very willing to work on us. But when I express that, I'm afraid she feels like I'm not listening to her and her very clear statement uh, that she doesn't think we can get better. So I've spoken to the family members. Uh, some suggest the better route is to partially disregard what she says and try to save our marriage. Some think it might be best to listen to her and separate. And none uh, think the cohabitation is best for us or the kids. Uh, what do you think? I think it's not up to your family and friends, and it's not, unfortunately, up to you. It's up to her. You can't force her to work on your marriage and attempt to save this marriage against her will. She wants to work on it or she doesn't want to work on it, and she doesn't. So the straw poll that you conducted among family and friends and the the chunk that urged you to disregard her feelings and attempt to save the marriage, that's horseshit. You let her know that you want to stay married and you are willing to work on it and it's up to her then to respond. And then it's balls in her court. She gets to respond to your offer. I'm willing to work. And she has said, I am not. That is the end of the conversation. So you're going to have to listen to your friends and family who voted for listen to her and separate. You don't even have to listen to her. You're separated. She is separating from you. Ending a relationship 
is the one thing about sex and romance and dating and everything else where the consent of the other party is immaterial. You do not need their permission to go. You do not need their permission to break up with them. And I'm sorry, and it's painful, and my heart goes out to you, my heart goes out to your kids. It's sad when a a marriage ends, if both people aren't happy to see it end and, you know, parting as friends, which sometimes happens. Sad, usually, to see a marriage end because you can infer a lot of pain and heartbreak into that situation. That bums people out. Also, it makes people feel the mortality of their own relationships when they see other people breaking up like, ah, that could happen to me, right? That's sad. But it's not something that you have control over. You make it sound in your call as if you have complete control over this situation and you don't. This is happening to you and you aren't in control of it. And she doesn't need your permission or your consent to leave you. She's already left. All you can do now is negotiate with her in good faith the terms of the dissolution of your marriage and what that's going to look like and how you're going to co-parent together. How that partnership, that part of your partnership, that's going to survive. And you're going to want that to be a low-conflict, low-stress, cooperative arrangement. And you fighting with her now about whether or not she's allowed to go. And you presenting her with, I don't know, letters of reference from friends and family who say you're to disregard her feelings and fight to save your marriage. That is not a recipe for a low-conflict cooperative co-parenting arrangement after the end of your marriage. I'm very sorry that your marriage is coming to an end and that's not a choice that you made or are happy with, but it's a choice that's been made for you. It is a choice that can be made for someone and you're going to have to make peace with that and make peace with her and let her go. Not let her go. I shouldn't say it that way because it's not about letting her go. You're going to have to watch her go. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something-year-old female living on the East Coast. I have been married with my husband for about seven years. I love him. He's amazing. We have great chemistry. However, as much as we try to fix it, we realize that we are not sexually compatible at all. So last year, we decided to finally open up our marriage and sleep with other people. And it has been great. We've been having so much fun meeting other people and hooking up with other people. It's been awesome. But I recently reconnected with an old friend from high school who I used to really like at the time. And he used to like me, but nothing really came of it. Nothing really happened. He's currently living in another state about three hours away. And he's also married. However, his marriage is not open and he's not happy. We've been only talking on the phone, via text, uh, nothing. We've never met in person. Um, but we have connected in such a deep level that I feel like I'm fucking falling for this guy now. And he just confessed that he's feeling the same way. Given the nature of my open marriage with my husband, anything romantic, involving feelings, or anything like that is definitely off the table when it came to our agreement. It should involve just meaningless sex and that's it. But now I feel like this could like potentially be dangerous because I am really falling for this guy and I am way past the whole no feelings or anything. And I have no idea what to do because I love my husband, but I think I love this guy too. I, I don't know what to do. Well, technically, if you never meet up with this guy and never fuck him, you're not in violation of the agreement that you made with your husband about open relationships because the open thing was – don't fuck anyone you have feelings for and here's this guy that you have feelings for and you're not fucking him. You're not in the same place. And you may find that if you met up with this person, 
that you wouldn't want to fuck him. That whatever physical chemistry that existed when you were in high school, that that's burned off. And what you're so excited about when you talk with him is this emotional connection that you guys – that he's confiding in you and, you, and, and there's this frisson that may not survive a physical meeting or it could be the match to the gasoline if you met up with him. So meeting up with him would be very dangerous. I would encourage you to go to your husband and be open. Go to your husband and say, I haven't violated the terms of our open relationship. I haven't mixed feelings with sex, but I began chatting with somebody I had a crush on in high school, had a crush on me in high school, and it got kind of carried away and took on an emotional sort of, you know, we have emotional connection. Like I have strong feelings for this person I haven't seen in 20 years. And you're a little flummoxed by it. And see how your husband feels about that. As I said earlier to the, to the person struggling about the can you fuck other people in our bed issue, an open relationship is often renegotiated over time. And a lot of people who are poly now, who have you know a boyfriend or a girlfriend in addition to a spouse or a wife, uh, that wasn't allowed at the beginning of the open relationship. At the beginning of the open relationship, it was sex only and no emotional connections and not in our time. All these other rules to sort of preclude the possibility of somebody catching feelings for another person that they were fucking. And it's often the case that these people who have a spouse and a romantic partner, boyfriend, a bonus romantic partner, that they backed into that and then had to renegotiate the terms of their open relationship from a place of unexpected violation where they kind of got there, got carried away and then had to go to their partner and say, okay, look, this is what's happening now. Is this okay? Do I need to cut this off? What do we do about this? What do I do about this? Sometimes people go and make that confession to their partner and their partner confesses the same thing that one of their sex partners that they were seeing very casually and trying to keep it not intimate. They kind of began to chat with and now ah, they're feeling Something for someone else, too, that they weren't allowed to feel. We can't always help who we develop feelings for. And the kind of connection that you describe, that's something a lot of people out there in monogamous relationships and closed relationships have experienced because of social media. Because how easy it is to reconnect with people and to be intimate with them, to call and text and Snapchat and Skype, that people can have these emotional affairs facilitated by these new technologies that in the past they wouldn't have been able to have, they would have been protected from. And so you have to protect yourself from that or you need to renegotiate the terms of your open relationship to allow for it. So as difficult as it might seem, you need to go to your husband. You haven't technically violated the terms of your open relationship. You haven't been romantically intimate with someone that you were fucking. You backed into kind of a romantic intimacy with someone you haven't seen for 20 years and still haven't seen and have no immediate plans to see and someone who is monogamously married to someone else but not happy and so you may never see and then let your husband help you process those feelings hopefully he won't feel violated and then see what he has to say and if he says this has to stop and you love your husband then you may be in a position where you have to choose the connection and the freedom and the love that you have with your husband or this tenuous new media facilitated connection that you have to this person you haven't seen in 20 years. To me, the choice seems obvious if indeed your husband requires you to make a choice. Hi, I am an almost 27 year old bisexual woman living in sort of the BC area. 
I've been dating a man for 10 months and I love him so deeply and he feels the same way about me, which is just great. The sex is 50% of the time good to great, 50% of the time boring. And when it's good to great, the only real difference is like a certain level of intensity and just connection that we end up finding. It's almost always pretty vanilla. I like to be spanked. I like to be called horrible, fucked up names because, I don't know, I mean, I'm quite feminist, just super, super fucking feminist. And I think there's some sort of kink surrounding, like, just doing the absolute opposite in the bedroom and letting someone demean you. I don't know what it is. I have expressed this to my loving, kind boyfriend so many times, and he he cannot work up the nerve call me a slut or a whore or a bitch or a cunt. He can't, he, he, he's uncomfortable with it. He's finally started spanking me some, but it doesn't turn him on. He does it for me, not because he likes it. And I, and his dick won't get hard or won't stay hard when he does it. If he's, you know, and I think what it comes down to is that he's really just basically not turned on by the meeting me, which is all well and fine. But that is one of my favorite days, and I don't know what to do. We are monogamous. We have talked about that, and he doesn't want anything else. And again, that's fine. I have thought about, you know, open relationships before and something I'm interested in, but I don't want to push it on him, and it's only been nine months. I'm willing to see what happens, and I do love him. I want him to be happy. Either enjoy the vanilla sex more or encourage him to, you know, really wail at me would be awesome. You let him know what you need and he can't do it or he won't do it. Sounds like he can do it, but his heart's not in it. And that's not good enough for you. You want to be with somebody who's as turned on by your off the shelf transgressive kink for wanting to be demeaned and degraded, even though you're not even though because, as you say, because in part you're a right on feminist and people like to transgress against not just cultural norms, but their own sense of self in the bedroom. They want to play and you require this kind of play to feel sexually fulfilled. And you know, when you have this great and intimate and connected sex 50% of the time, that's good. You like that sex. When you have the rest of the sex, the other 50% of the time you stew and you feel deprived and, and resentful because your needs aren't getting met because this isn't the kind of sex that you want to be having particularly if you're in a monogamous relationship. I feel like I'm telling a lot of people to break up today. You can break up with someone because you're not sexually compatible. That is a perfectly legitimate reason to say goodbye. It's a crucial reason to say goodbye if what you want or what they want is a sexually exclusive, never-ending commitment because then sexual compatibility is hugely important. If you have needs, pressing one's, that they can't meet and you're not allowed to get them met elsewhere. No, it's just sex. And that's what people say. Oh, you, you know, if you love them and sex shouldn't matter. Yeah, no, sex matters. People will sabotage and end relationships that are perfectly loving and perfectly wonderful to get the sex that they require, that they are wired to need. And so you either need to reverse engineer this relationship so that these needs that you have for a certain kind of 
demeaning, transgressive, pro-feminist, anti-feminist, turn on kink can happen for you. And you won't require it of him anymore. This thing that he's like doing, doesn't even like doing it. it makes his boner go away to do these things for you. So he should let someone else do it. Didn't like mowing the lawn. He'd let somebody else mow the fucking lawn. And that's the choice you should lay before him. I need this. You don't like it. Can't do it. When you do do it, it's not good for you. Not good for me either. So how do we both get what we want in this relationship? What accommodations can we both provide for each other so that we can stay together? And maybe us together is more important than us being sexually exclusive eternally. It's only been nine months, though. Maybe I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you not to break up with him so fast. Show him some porn. Give him permission. If he's a right-on feminist guy, maybe he feels a little conflicted about liking this or being seen to like this. Maybe he's willing the boner away for fear of his feminist bona fides coming into question, even by you. You know, there are people out there who say, do this to me, do that to me, it turns me on. And then you do this to them, you do that to them. They come and they have this kind of post-orgasmic mortification, regret, shame wave wash over them. And those people, even though they asked for it, will sometimes turn around and kink shame the person who did that thing for them that they asked for and can make that person feel terrible about having done that thing that they were asked to do by that person who got off on it but now is feeling all fucked up about it. I don't know how much of your sexual histories you've shared, but maybe he had that experience once with another woman who had these kinds of kinks. If you got him to open up about it, talk to him about it more, maybe this is in him somewhere and he's just not allowing it to, to surface for fear of being implicated. But that's a long shot. I think what's much likelier is you guys are just not sexually compatible. Maybe give it another two months, do a little work on it, make sure he understands that this is Something that's got to happen or you got to go and it's got to happen from a joyful turn on place or you got to go and you're going to do it with him in a joyfully turned on way or you're going to stay with him but do this with somebody else every once in a while because you need it and if that's not okay with him then you got to go. Before we get to listener feedback, some of your tweets. Carrie Bell tweets, listening to the newest Savage Lovecast and remembering when I sent at fake Dan Savage a long rambling email asking him if it was okay that I wasn't talking to my dad. And he responded with permission granted. Your dad sounds like a jerk. You can see him at his funeral. That's some ice cold fucking advice right there. But toxic people, you get to cut them out of your life, even if they're related to you by blood. At Wake Up Song tweets, on men's need for foreplay, hashtag at Savage Lovecast, colon, how is this hard to understand a man's need for foreplay? Because everyone thinks dicks are 18 years old forever. Sometimes a dick is rock hard. Sometimes it needs coaxing. Foreplay for all, y'all. Want to endorse that? Foreplay for all, y'all. This sounds like it's in response to something I said, but I don't recall ever saying that men don't deserve or dick havers don't deserve their fair share of foreplay. Of course they do. I endorse foreplay for dicks. And finally, the Normalizing Non-Monogamy podcast tweets at me at my podcast, catching up on a ton of Magnum Savage Lovecasts and had an idea for the DADT folks out there. Those would be people who have don't ask, don't tell agreements with their partners. They're in open relationships, but you can't ask their partners if it's okay if you fuck them because they're not supposed to tell their partners when they're fucking other people. That's DADT. The advice from the Normalizing Non-Monogamy podcast host is record a short video on your phone with your partner for the people you want to date. Fuck. Hey, we're happily together and they can fuck who they want, but I don't want to know about it. Enjoy! Exclamation point. That is solid and I must say 
tech-savvy advice. Thank you, Normalizing Non-Monogamy Podcast, for weighing in. Now, your response calls. Fellow queer woman calling to help your last caller about how to manage getting hit on by guys in bars when you are not interested in them at all. I would like to say that I have perfected the term that I really can't stand the resting bitch face, but you know, you said something that uh, you used the word graceful in your way of like turning them down. And just as a reminder, especially since you're not interested in ever seeing these people again, you don't have to be graceful. You can just say, no thanks dude. And turn away. You can like literally do all of the things that show them that you're like really, really not interested because sometimes when I try to be kind or friendly, they take that as a miscommunication of my interest in them. And I'm like, nah, dude, I have like zero interest in you. So you got to show that verbally and non-verbally all at the same time. I'm sure you're doing it also because like oftentimes they just don't give a shit and they don't take no for an answer. And so just, keep doing it turn away don't make eye contact look at your lady and ignore them they're a bunch of d-bags so whatever hi dan this is a call in response to the queer young lady on episode 649 as a straight guy if you want us not to hit on you just be fucking rude tell us hey no we're not fucking interested and i'll get the point I'm I'm with it. I, I like when I'm being told straightforward and like without any feeling covering up, I'm not interested. It lets me know that I should just end all hope. And I'm good with that. Also, you know, if you pretend like I'm not there too, if I'm like, hey, how you doing? And, and you just uh, don't even hear me on purpose, I'm gone. This is just for me, though. I don't know about the rest of the male population, but I'm pretty damn sure if you if you give them the cold fuck you feel, they'll go away. Hi, I am a cis lady calling with a comment for the, the guy who yawns after he comes. I yawn without fail every time after I come, and it's kind of how my husband can tell whether or not I've had an orgasm. So it's totally normal and adorable and is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of or insulted by. And I think your sexual partners who are insulted are probably just insecure. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hey, my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival is headed this week to Cleveland, Ohio. And tickets are on sale now at Hump Film Fest. Com. And our newest film festival, Spliff, with films made by stoners, for stoners, is in Denver this weekend at the Oriental Theater. Head to spliffilmfest.com for more info and to get tickets. And Seattle, don't forget to buy tickets for Savage Love Live at The Egyptian on May 11th with special guests Rachel Clark and comedian Corina Lucas. Buy your tickets at savagelovecast.com and go to savagelovecast.com slash events to find out when Savage Love Live is coming to a city near All right, follow me on Twitter at fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Becky Lynn on Twitter at Becky K. Lynn. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech heavy at risk youth. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.